Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. There's a fellow by the name of Arthur Brooks, and uh, he's written several books. He's got one now called How to Build a Life. I believe he's the guy that came up with the, that, that motto, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. <laughs> Very simple. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember, is it American Enterprise Institute maybe he used to work at, if I recall correctly? Conservative guy. He's got a piece at The Atlantic, or he had a piece at The Atlantic a little while ago. It's called How We Learned to Be Lonely. And talks about COVID-19. He says going from surviving to thriving. It's uh, crucial for healing and growth after a disaster. Scholars have shown that it can be a common experience that we all share, right? When something tragic happens, everybody kind of rallies together, and it, it, it breeds this unity. It makes us stronger. Oftentimes, the worst conditions will bring out the best in us. We're all working together for our own recovery, for our neighbor's recovery. This is why, you know, during times of great tragedy and disaster, you know, you always look for the people that are helping because there always are. There are always people helping. And that's where you should focus your gaze. That's the inspiration. That's the human experience. COVID-19 appears to be resistant to this phenomenon, unfortunately, he says. The most salient social feature of the pandemic was how it forced people into isolation. For those fortunate enough not to lose a loved one, the major trauma it created was loneliness. Instead of coming together, emerging evidence suggests we're in the midst of a long-term crisis of habitual loneliness. Where relationships were severed, and never reestablished. A lot of people, maybe you, are still wandering alone without the company of friends and loved ones to help rebuild your life. If your life has not yet gone back to its 2019 normal, you're not alone. In a poll that was conducted March of last year by the Kaiser Family Foundation, 59% of respondents said they did not fully return to their pre-pandemic activities. Now, that was last year. Time has passed. But you're talking two out of three have not fully returned to pre-pandemic activities. So you're still, I could tell you, like, Christy and I, we have. We are, we are pre-2019 activities, if not more so. We're, we're, like, we're like catching up on, <laughs> on, on missed events and such. Doing more, meeting more, going more places, doing more stuff. 59% of those who say their jobs can mainly be done from home are still working at home all or most of the time. Most are doing this by choice, despite the fact that 60% say they feel less connected to their coworkers than they had before the pandemic. Now, the other thing I would suggest here is also maybe you just didn't like your office and coworkers because that's a big part of it. Like if you're working with a bunch of clods, I'm thinking you know, this might be a really good thing. By the way, this is an opportunity for me to just point out you're looking to hook up with some organizations 
the Kiwanis Club, the Rotary Club, right? Knights of Columbus types of organizations. I mean, there are tons of them out there, these civic, civic organizations, and they need people to volunteer. They need people on board to help. And if you don't, again, if you don't want government to do this stuff, civic organizations have to step up. And that means they need volunteers. They need people. Same thing with, um, same thing with local governance, right? If you leave it, if if good people don't volunteer, then you leave it to the bad people to run, and that and they're bad. <laughs> so why would you want to live under some governance structure that they control? By the way, the Kiwanis Club is doing their uh, coolest dog in Charlotte contest. Charlotte-Kiwanis.org. Enter your dog into the contest, and then get people to vote now through March 24th, and uh, if your dog wins, it'll be on the front can, uh, front of a can of beer from Pilot Brewing. In a poll that Pew Research Center conducted in May of 2022, one out of five people said socializing had become more important to them since the pandemic, but 35% said it had become less important. One said, I just got out of the habit. There was a, a survey spring of 2022 And American adults say that uh, they found it harder now to form relationships. A quarter felt anxious about socializing. Nine percent were worried about being physically near other people. They're the ones that drive around with masks. The biggest source of anxiety shared by 29 percent was, quote, not knowing what to say or how to interact. We have lost the ability to speak with each other in person. I saw... Bill Maher did a rant this weekend on his program uh, on HBO, and he was talking about trigger warnings and all that. And I've covered this topic for years. Trigger warnings don't work. In fact, they, they reinforce the identity of victim, making it harder to overcome the trauma, which the way you overcome trauma is to accept that it happened, right? And then you you persevere through it. You, you, what did Dan Starks, the late Dan Starks, always used to say, right? Don't be a victim. It is not the thing that defines you. But these trigger warnings reinforce this idea that that is what you are. You are constantly a victim. And then, and then people internalize this stuff. We have forgotten. How, one of the trigger warnings, one of the things that trigger people, eye contact. Eye contact. I don't understand what kind of society these people think they're building. I really don't. Many of us have simply just forgotten how to be friends, he says. The growing, uh, the, the growing habitual loneliness is a public health crisis because research consistently shows that isolation is linked to depression and anxiety. It has been shown to lead to premature death. It worsens cardiovascular health. It increases inflammation. It disrupts hormones and sleep. Two groups saw their rate of unhappiness rise more significantly than the others. You want to take a guess who they were? Two groups. Single people and people who don't regularly attend religious service. Kids, too, could be especially vulnerable. Born during the pandemic, missed a crucial window of socialization, exhibiting deficits in communication. Loneliness likely inhibits our executive function, which we need in order to deal with our distress appropriately. Loneliness, like homelessness or poverty, tends to be self-perpetuating as well. As much as it's 
harder to get on your feet once you no longer have a place to sleep or shower or an address or a telephone. Social isolation leads to behavior that leads to even more isolation. If you've been if you've been seeking remote work instead of in-person work for convenience, choosing solitary activities over group ones because of awkwardness, you, you're electing not to reestablish old friendships because of sheer torpor, he says. You may be stuck in a pattern of learned loneliness. To break out, you got to try an opposite signal strategy. Your inertia probably tells you getting dressed, going to work, it's going to be a hassle. Inviting somebody over for dinner, it's going to be uncomfortable. I might have to make eye contact with them. You should do these things anyway. Going with what's easy and convenient in work and friendship cuts this groove that the COVID-19 virus put into all our, like a, like a, like a uh, record, right? It cut a groove. And if you're just going to do what's easy and convenient in your relationships and friendships, it just makes that groove deeper. And that makes it harder to escape. It becomes a rut. If you can remember the warmth and happiness of your old social self, make a few changes. This could be a year of renewal for you. And if any of that resonates with you, please, I urge you, make it a year of renewal. Resistance to pressure builds strength. That is how you overcome these things. Now, part of the other problem is, I, I, I cannot believe I'm going to say this, but Matthew Iglesias... Matthew Iglesias, of all people, from the, the guy who helped start up Vox.com. He has his own substack now called Slow Boring, which it is. Oh, I kid, I kid. There's a name. He, there's a reason he calls it that. I think it's meant like a drill, like a boring into the ground or something, slow, whatever. But he's a lefty. But Matthew Iglesias may have actually stumbled upon a truism that may help his fellow people of the left. Headline. Progressives are incentivized to catastrophize. Progressives are incentivized to catastrophize. What is this about? Right. Over the last couple of weeks, I've talked about it. You've heard it elsewhere, I'm sure. Got studies that have come out talking about teenagers, their mental health. Why are they so depressed, especially teenaged girls? And at this point, there isn't really much doubt coming from anybody about the facts that teens are experiencing a mental health decline. Jonathan Haidt, working on a book, I, uh, I mentioned his work last week, and he's going to argue that the decline is being driven primarily by the adoption of smartphones and social media, specifically Instagram for girls. But what if there's something about progressivism? What if? All right. Matthew, oh, yes, I did. I I have seen this. I got a Pete tweet. My good friend Ray Cooper on Twitter says, Pete, have you seen Matt Iglesias' latest fetish? Walking around Washington, D.C. and reporting people for expired parking meters or license plate frames that are too big using the D.C. Police Department snitching app. It's like he wishes he lived in East Germany he has such an urge to snitch. I have seen that. I saw he took a picture of uh, somebody's car in D.C. that doesn't that didn't have the front license plate because you know in some states you have to have the front tag 
New York had front tags. North Carolina, South Carolina does not. I don't know why. I don't. Doesn't matter. Yeah. So he's, so they have a snitch app, and so apparently he's just like he's giving it a workout because he's such a little snitch. That's why I am as surprised as you are to hear myself giving you some of his uh, some of his analysis here because he's such a little snitch. But maybe this is maybe this is why. Maybe this is why because he's kind of snitching. On, the, on his own progressives. It's long been known that liberals tend to be more depressed than conservatives. Did you know that, by the way? <laughs> yeah, liberals are more depressed than conservatives, which you can interpret as either a cause or an effect of their unhappiness with the status quo. Look, I have said for years, some people are just not happy unless they're miserable. He goes on to say, in eight factors... Couldn't explain why, among the 12th graders the study examined, the gap in depressive symptoms between liberals and conservatives appeared to be growing. Nor could those factors explain why, after several years in which liberal girls and liberal boys endured roughly equal rates of depression, girls who identified as liberal had started having a much harder time. And he says... I think the discussion around gender and the role of social media is an important one, but I also don't believe that liberal boys are experiencing more depression than conservative girls because they're disproportionately hung up on Instagram-induced body image issues. I think there's also something specific to politics going on. Oh, he's so close. He's so close to it. You're almost there, Maddie. Just a little reach, just a little bit farther. You'll get there. He says some of it might be selection effect with progressive politics becoming a more congenial home for people who are miserable. But I think some of it is poor behavior by adult progressives, many of whom now valorize depressive affect as a sign of Political commitment. Do you hear people talk about the work and how they're how they're always so tired? They're just exhausted from putting in all the work. That's what this is. That's what he's talking about. There's to valorize depressive affect. Valorize, right? To right? that there's some sort of honor and valor to being depressed about it all. It's just so difficult. Life is complicated, and this is difficult. But for a very wide range of problems, part of helping people get out of their trap is teaching them not to catastrophize. People who are paralyzed by anxiety or depression or who are lashing out with rage are not usually totally untethered from reality. They are worried or sad or angry about real things. But instead of changing the things they can change and seeking the grace to accept the things they cannot, they are dwelling unproductively as problems fester. This is called, by the way, rumination. What psychiatrists call rumination. Right? Where you're, you're just obsessing on something. You're ruminating on this, on this thing. Yeah. And you're not overcoming it. This is why Jordan Peterson, the psychiatrist, he talks about picking up your room before changing the world, right? 
if you cannot improve this one little corner of this great big globe that is yours, you have your own little space, wherever that space is, if you can't keep that tidy, if you can't manage that, if that is just like a bomb went off in it all the time, you never pick up, because that, by the way, and I, I know this about myself, the clutter for me creates anxiety. I mean, not like clinical anxiety, although I don't know, I've never been in a truly cluttered place but yes, like I go in, like if I if I had to live someplace that was really, really like cluttered stuff all over the place, I would I would go nuts. I would go nuts. I I, I cannot deal with that. Um, and I suspect most people cannot. I think like hoarding. I think th- this is why people get into this cycle, this depression, anxiety cycle. With and so they buy more stuff because they're trying to fill some some hole that trauma caused in them in their psyche. Right in their heart, and they're trying to fill it with stuff, and they can't stop, and they just get more and more stuff, and they have no more room for the stuff, and that makes them even more depressed. And now they got a bigger hole, so they keep trying to fill that with more stuff. You don't get past these things until you confront them, and there may be something going on here. John Sexton, uh, writing at HotAir.com, John Sexton thinks, yeah, Iglesias. Yeah, he's on to something here. All right, are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old-school, traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim? He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear... Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. John Sexton at hotair.com. He says, part of dealing with depression is making yourself consider that things are rarely as bad as they feel. And that fixing them might not only be possible, but relatively easy to do. Now think about how that sort of advice would play if given to a collection of campus activists for, well, any leftist cause. It doesn't matter if it's climate change activists, anti-police activists, anti-white supremacy activists, trans activists. I mean, take your pick, right? They absolutely do not want to hear that the problem they are focused on is anything but the most dire problem ever. They want to hear that it's so dire It's worth going beyond the bounds of civil society and maybe even sitting down in front of traffic, sabotaging a pipeline, setting a forest on fire, setting yourself on fire, gluing yourself to art. In every case, it's the people who catastrophize the most who have status within the organization while people who share the same concerns but refuse to catastrophize are treated as heretics, right? It seems, I mean, this seems to make perfect sense to me, but let's see. Dean, welcome to the program. Hello, Dean. Hi, Pete. Hey, Pete, I, I hope people are, are really focusing on what, you know, you're, you're saying. I, I understand the story and, and, you know, these people that dissect all this, but I, I just hope that your analysis is so spot on on this that you, you don't really learn anything but through experience. And that's going to be your best teacher. I mean, if there was written, you know, I mean, 
there are no playbooks for this like people want them to be, right? I mean, playbooks for I what? Mean, well, for you know how to how what you know. Okay, so I know what depression is. So now I know what I what I've got to do to resolve it. It's it's different. There is no you if you you know if you try to shelter or don't give people the experience of it, they're never going to be able to overcome whatever it is. Right. So you know, make you, it better. So, Dean, you have raised, um, there's another aspect to this. It came out on a public radio station, actually, a couple of weeks ago. Young adults struggling with their mental health. Is more childhood independence the answer? To your point, letting kids have free play, giving them time. Like, I'm a Gen X kid, the best, right? The Gen X, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, we, we, like, we would come home from school. We usually had to let ourselves into the house. We had a key. Right, we if we got to make some snack or something after school, and they'd go out and play, and we would not come home until dinner time, and that was that, like that was our life every single day. And you have all this free play time, and you learn to overcome obstacles. You learn to deal with stuff out in the real world with your friends, and to navigate those relationships and stuff. And when kids get everything planned around, you know, play dates and who's, you got to have a parent there at every moment to over, oversee everything. And some parents manage like what, what their, how their children play, that sort of stuff. You're, you're, th- mm-hmm. that's called the bulldozer parent. It's not even a helicopter mom anymore. It's a bulldozer. It just plows away every obstacle in front of them. And then what happens is when they get older, they, they don't know how to overcome an obstacle because mom and dad have always plowed it away for them. Yeah, it seems, but when, you know, what seems to dilute the whole thing is when you say free time, because it wasn't really free time. It was time to go out, you know, and do that. Now, you know, on the other hand, somebody's going to say, oh, yeah, they, so they can go meet their drug dealer. Well, <laughs> well you know, you, you, you know, it isn't free time without any constraints. It's structured free time. Does that make sense? Like, you know, I never had structured um, free time. I mean, well, are you saying now that are you saying now it is? Yeah, now you know, you know, it, it's it's like okay, you can have free time, but you still can't. You know, it, you're absolutely right. It's the interaction. It's all the positives you said, but people are going to say free time to get in trouble. You know, that's uh, yes, and and uh, Dean, um, I did get in trouble in my free time. Absolutely, that was part of it. And then guess what? I stopped making those decisions. Person. Yeah, I stopped making similar decisions when I would get into the trouble. I would so, say, oh, so, I shouldn't do that anymore because I just got into I just got into trouble. So, are these other people trying to help me, or are they just making money to make me worry more and give me more anxiety? Who's who are these other? Who's giving you anxiety? Is it I'm not giving you anxiety? Am I, Dean? Wait, no, you're not. Okay. You, you made a very good example of people to me that are people that are trying, and rather than solve anything, they're just right. creating more issues. Right. Because and and so this is and so this is why. And look, I have never been one to argue. And I hear people say it all the time, liberalism is a mental disorder. I don't like that phrase. Uh, I understand people say it as a joke, but kind of not. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But this, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a quote-unquote disorder. I'm saying there is just maybe something, some way that people are thinking, and I think a lot of it is environmental as they grow up, where parents, you know, because again, like the stats show, how, how is it that liberal boys have more depression than conservative girls? Right, because yeah, girls have higher rates of depression than boys. So how how do how, how do the liberal boys end up ahead of the conservative girls? Who cares? What I do, I, mean, I care because there may be something. There may be something because all right. Why does a kid become a liberal or a conservative? 
did the kid come to these beliefs on their own? Did the kid like sit down and read, you know, Adam Smith or something, or you know, Ronald Reagan's biography, and they became a conservative? No, no. he assimilates all the experiences, and he either concludes then, boy, my dad is nuts, or this isn't what I want, or my friend is, you know, more logical. Again, it goes back to you know, right upbringing, uh, and and a a lot of it is the information they receive from their parents and their teachers and their peers. And if the message that is constantly being driven home to them is, we're all going to die of climate change in 10 years, do you think that they adopt that position? I, I think that if that's given to them, they have to work their way through it. Yeah. I don't think you have an option once it's laid on you. Right. And so if, you're, if that's the environment you grow up in, thinking that the world is going to end before you can even legally purchase beer, then what is the purpose of your life? To purchase beer? No, it's to try to it's to try to stop all of these people from killing you in ten years, and that that is such a huge problem, right? To literally change the climate of the entire planet, and we can't even get recycling right. We can't even get we can't even keep people from throwing junk in the rivers. How much do you think of like all of this is 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 not motivated for the good of everyone and not motivated to their own personal agenda. I mean, you know, think like me, not like you. How? All right, so I don't know what that... You have to restate that question. I'm lost. I don't understand the question. Yeah, wait a minute. I, I'll work. You got it. You, you had me enough. I'll, uh, all right. I'll work on it and call you in a little bit. All right, Dean. I, all right. Thanks for the call. It's good to talk with you. I, now I, I tried to follow the question, but I don't know who's, who they is in that question. The people who needed a safe space because some comedian was coming on campus or a speaker got invited and, uh, you know, people started freaking out, right? We joked about this stuff. I've talked about this for years. I used to sit in this chair from 9 till midnight, weeknights, gosh, uh, 15 years ago. Oh, my goodness. We would mock the cry closets. I would play audio of these screaming College kids, right? These man children, these woman children, these they them children, whatever. Like they're just melting down because somebody showed up on campus and said something that they disagreed with. They were so mentally fragile that they could not even listen to somebody else's opinion. And not only that, they would go specifically to the event and then engage in this performative catastrophization, right? That, the, that, oh my gosh, words are violence, you're going to kill people, you're going to harm people by expressing an opinion about economics with which I disagree. They were unserious people. And now, they've broken containment, and it's all over the place. I think it's fair to say conservatives have been pointing out this dynamic for years. John Sexton says the mockery of safe spaces and special snowflakes was always meant to emphasize that the fixation on harm seemed excessive and, he's exactly right here, unconvincing. Unconvincing. A lot of people on the left, including most of the media, treated it as if the right was mocking the you know, disabled by making fun of something that people can't change. But in fact, the right was giving the left more respect than that. They were mocking them precisely because so much of it seemed to put on. Seem like something from which adults could separate themselves at will if they were so inclined to do so. 
The right wasn't beating up on the weak. It was laughing at people who were pretending to be weaker than they actually are. And apparently we were mistaken. They are. They actually are this way. And that makes me so sad. So sad for them. The uh, Twitter handle is at Pete Callender, uh, where I got a couple messages here. Ikifu says, uh, yep, you're either the most extreme or you're a poser. I am so happy. The autism protected me from needing external validation. <laughs> uh, and then at Patriot Girl says, conservative families are more likely to take their kids to church, and that goes a long way in preventing depression. Religion teaches hope, and hope discourages depression. Just my two cents. Let's go over here and get Mike on the program. Hello, Mike. What's going on? Hey, Pete. Um, you know, uh, for, for a while I've been wanting to call in and point out that to me, Liberalism, modern liberalism, requires victims and villains. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find something equally uh, equally alliterative about what uh, conservatism is. And I finally came up with responsibility and resourcefulness, and you may improve upon that. But I think the key point is that liberalism requires victims and villains. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, Ben Shapiro has talked about this. We are always either the hero or the victim, never the villain in our stories, right? And 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 what we have moved towards now is a is a victim culture instead of like a uh, uh, like a chivalry culture or something where you know the where the norms that we all sort of agree to and play by these rules, these accepted rules, these mores, like that's not the, where we are now. Is the power rests with the victimized. And so you get status by being one. And it's not just victims, it's villains, too. Mm-hmm. The alliterative, the, the alliterative uh, counterpoint for the victim. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I invite you to come up with a better uh, alliterative pair than responsibility and resourcefulness for, for conservatism. I haven't been able to. It's not bad. But anyway, no, it's pretty I, good. I, I just, like it. No, hey, put it I, on a I bumper sticker, it. Mike. You should put yeah, it, I, and then that makes it real. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think I, I, I just think it's interesting that you don't get anything coming from the left that doesn't include a victim or a villain, mm-hmm. and usually both. Well, and That's here's why, right? And here's why. Here's why that model has worked. It's because it relies on the on the good faith and good naturedness of the quote unquote villains in that scenario. It relies on it because look, if if I'm a if I truly am the villain that some uh, somebody on the left paints me as, then I don't care if they're a victim, right? It doesn't matter to me if they're a victim. I'm not going to cease doing what I'm doing. I'm going to continue it. I know it's working, and so I'm going to keep yeah. doing it to keep victimizing them. So why so why would they keep portraying themselves as such if it means diminished power? But obviously exactly. it doesn't. Right, it doesn't. And so they keep doing it and that relies on me saying, "Oh, I don't want to be called this terrible thing. I don't want to be the villain you say I am. So now I will stop doing what you say I am doing. I will now curtail my actions, I'll curb my speech and I do this in service to this this higher good." That I assume we both agree on, but we don't. We don't. It's just a power play. That's all it is. 
Yes, and those. So, as you're pointing out, those on the right, those who are not necessarily villains, uh, cave to it. Yeah. Yeah. Cave to the uh, interpretation or the appellation. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, I appreciate the call, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, great stuff. Thank you. Um, John Saxon concludes his piece at Hot Air. He says, I still think a lot of the depression, the teen depression, and that story, it's going to turn out to be connected to social media. And I agree with that. Social media and cell phones. Um, but I do think it's plausible that the problem is worse on the left because the left has found being a victim of harm caused by somebody else to be very useful to their politics. So there's an incentive there. Teaching teenagers to catastrophize everything of importance is probably not a good life lesson. Probably not. On the contrary... The job of a good parent is to make kids resilient and strong, not somebody liable to fall over at a harsh word from a stranger. They've got classes now at colleges called Adulting 101. Have you heard this? Adulting 101? To teach you how to deal with things like getting an Uber, things that are terrifying, like going to the grocery store. I'm not kidding. Yeah, resilience. I like it. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.